Now we can really see what the theme of the Bible is, we ought to note a number of threads which run right through the whole of Scripture. Now, the last study, we spent quite a lot of time uh, looking at the various Scriptures. This evening, I'm only um, pointing them out. There are five threads that run from Genesis to Revelation. I've used Louise's little blackboard here. They kindly lent it to me again. Um, the first is Christ, um, the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman. That's uh, we find from Genesis right the way through to the book of Revelation. The second thread is atonement through blood. It begins in the third chapter of Genesis and we find it right the way through the whole of the Bible until we come to the book of Revelation. The third point is God's dwelling place. This again we discover throughout the whole of the Bible in and under various figures. We find it in, in the symbol of the bride, in the symbol of the tabernacle, of the temple, of the body, uh, and so on. Uh, we find it in the, the symbol of the city, from beginning to end of the Bible, you have this thread running through it, God's dwelling place. And then the fourth thread is the history of God's people from the beginning. And the Bible traces, it's one of its themes, it traces the history of what the Quakers used to call the good seed, beginning with Abel and tracing it right through the whole of history right on until the, until the present day. For, in fact, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation um, foresee the triumph of God's own people and, in a strange way, they foretell the history of God's people. That's why many believe that the book of Acts is an unfinished record because it linked up the church in the Old Testament with the church in the New Testament, and the most marvellous thing of all, it uh, ends on an unfinished note. Um, as if the point being that all of us are part of the story of the Acts of the Apostles. Well, Daniel and some of the other prophets, principally Daniel, and also the, um, John in the book of Revelation, they take up this thread and we find it there. And then the fifth thread is the adversary of God and the battle of the ages and God's triumph. Now those are five threads <coughs> that you find woven together from beginning to end of the Bible. And out of those five threads there emerges a threefold theme. Um, it, it takes up all these five. Here it is, a threefold theme, one saviour, one salvation, and one company of the saved. Now that sums up the whole Bible. One saviour, one salvation, one company of the saved. You can put it in different ways, as we tried to last time, one mediator of the covenant, the blood of his covenant, and the people of the covenant. 
Or you can put it another way, the bringer of salvation, the Savior, the bringer of salvation, the way of salvation, Calvary, and the company of the saved, the saved. Or put it in an even simpler way, the one I think is the easiest to remember, the Redeemer, the, redemp uh, the Redeemer, the Redemption, the Redeemer. Anyway, however you like to entitle it, you have a threefold theme that runs like a great Amazon-like river from beginning to end of the whole Bible and takes the whole of it within <coughs> its grasp. If you look at this um, chart up here, you will find all these five threads in here Right from the very beginning here in the garden, before times eternal, we hear spoken of in Scripture, the Lamb as it was slain before the foundation of the world. So you have Christ before times eternal, destined to become the Savior of the world. And then, of course, you have all the rest of it here. You, you have, as we've already pointed out, atonement through blood. After the, the fall, you have the slaying of animals that they may be clothed in skins instead of leaves. And from then on, right the way through these different ages, the age of probation, the age of conscience, the age of the races, the age of the patriarchs, the age of law, and the age of grace, on into the age of the millennium, it is atonement through blood, not the blood of bulls and of goats, but the blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or without blemish. The whole of the Bible is taken up with atonement through blood, not the blood of animals, but the blood of God's own Son. And again, we find that is, it, it commences in the heart of God before times eternal. The lamb slain as it had been slain from before the foundation of the world. And at the very end of um, the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we hear a great song coming from a great innumerable multitude speaking of um, the blood of Christ by which they have been loosed from their sins and made a kingdom of priests unto their God. And so it will go on. The question of the dwelling place of God, in each of these ages you will find that there is um, a, a, an unfolding revelation of what God really wants, this spiritual home that God is looking for, made up not of bricks and stone, not a great institution or organization, but of living stones, made up of redeemed men and women. And when you come, of course, to the end of the book, you find that it's God has got what he has wanted. Through the cross, he has purchased this dwelling place, and at the end, he has it. And so it is also with the history of God's people right the way through. I've put a few folk here, the creation and the fall and the flood and Abraham and Moses, Christ on the second coming. You have the history of God's people right the way through. Some of the books of the Bible um, uh, in certain portions go right the way back to the beginning and trace it right the way through as if giving us a survey. That's, for instance, the one and two chronicles does that. It goes right the way back to Adam and traces the whole of history again. Although we've already got history in other parts of God's word. But it does it again for us. Because the whole point is 
that it wants to show us what really is the deepest objective of God's heart. Not just to have a nation called the Jews, but to have a dwelling place amongst men. And of course, so we could go on, I mean, you've got it again in the New Testament. Um, the Hebrew letter really does the same. It tries to explain to us something of what God's real thought is, not just to be saved, but to go on into the inheritance that is ours. And of course, then this other thread, um, the adversary of God, well, you find that right back before times eternal, and right the way on through, you find this terrific battle of the ages. Now, when we speak of the battle of the ages, we mean these ages. These, according to Scripture, are ages, ages of time. This is before times eternal. That is before ages, the ages, you see. And afterwards you have the ages to come and the ages of the ages. But these are the ages of time. Um, now, of course, uh, not everyone will agree into the division into seven. Most will agree. Uh, some don't agree with this last division. They don't quite see the millennium. Um, they believe that that one goes right on forever, you see, the Sabbath rest. But the week of time, as it's commonly called, is agreed by ne to by nearly all Roman Catholic and Protestant uh, theologians. Um, the great week of time. But the question of whether the last day of the week goes on forever into the final Sabbath rest of God and of man, that's a question. Now, uh, this, this that we speak of here, the battle of the ages, is the battle that began here and ends only here. A tremendous battle in which God and his great adversary are locked in as to who is going to be king and who is going to have the throne of the universe. Now, of course, we are in that. I mean, that's quite contemporary. The international scene today is but the outward evidence of a terrible battle which has been raging for generations and generations right through these ages and will reach a climax at the end of human history. We've not seen the worst yet. It is to come. And, of course, I'm glad to say we've got here in God's triumph. Now, uh, this, uh, this chart, we, we can't put it all in. But it is the story not only of the adversary of God, Satan, and his host, and not only of the battle of the ages, but it is the story of God's continual triumph. Um, when everything seems at its darkest and blackest, God triumphs again and again and again. And scripture calls it the day of the Lord. And there will be many days of the Lord when the Lord's come out on top and when the enemy's gone down under. And, of course, it will all be summed up in the day of the Lord, that great day, as Scripture uh, entitles it, which will be at the end when God will finally and completely triumph. That will be the end of all this trouble that we are so used to, and so on. Well, now, you see, here we've got these five threads, which we can resolve into a three-fold theme, beginning at the beginning and going right the way through, the Redeemer, the Redemption, the Redeemed. Now, um, uh, to understand the aim of the Bible, we must set that theme um, against something even greater. 
we have got to take this threefold theme and we've got to put it into the context of God's eternal purpose. It would be quite wrong to say that all the, all the Bible speaks about is this threefold theme, the Redeemer, the Redemption, and the Redeemed. Um, in fact, we have got to bring it and place it against the background, the backdrop of God's eternal purpose. Now, I have drawn this chart in the hope that perhaps it will help us to understand. I have done it simply as if this is a library of books with a rather big volume to begin and a rather large volume to end. And you will see I've got Genesis 1 to 3 and I've got Revelation 20 to 22 as the first volume, as it were, and the last. And then all these volumes in between Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and so on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, so on and so on, you see. Now here, from beginning from here, from before Genesis chapter 1, before it really begins, in the beginning, as it uh, says in the first verse, in the beginning God. And we begin with God's eternal purpose. God had a purpose in the creation of the universe, and he had a purpose in the creation of man. And that purpose was an eternal and spiritual home. <coughs> now that eternal and spiritual home outlasts time. Um, I put a line there, but really it should go on. And here we have in the first volume, Genesis, the first three chapters of Genesis, the original intention of God, God's original intention, and the fall. And here at the end we have the original intention realized and the glory which follows. And here, in all these books, we have this threefold theme. I put it in like a red arrow. It begins in the first three chapters and ends in the last three. The Redeemer. And then the work of redemption. It didn't begin at the cross. The work of redemption, the actual literal work of redemption, of course, was accomplished on the cross. It was finished on the cross. But the work of redemption, the idea of it, began in the counsels of God. Right at the beginning. Before ever there was a and so we have Christ appointed as the Redeemer, and we have the cross appointed as the way of redemption. And then we have this other, which I'm not all will probably agree, the redeemed. And uh, they begin in the first three chapters. Well, of course they do actually begin in the first three chapters. It's a question of whether you believe that Adam and Eve were redeemed. Um, uh, perhaps you don't. Uh, there are some of us who believe that we shall see Adam and Eve one day uh, in heaven. Certainly able was a saved man. Um, through blood. Uh, through the blood of the Lamb. Well, the Redeemer, but whatever you may, you may feel, the point is this. Every single person who has ever been saved or ever will be saved was in God's heart before ever there was a fall. It all began. That's not just Calvinism. Whatever way you look at it, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, the point is that in the foreknowledge of God, or in the predestination of God's sovereignty, he knew those who were going to be saved. So you have this tremendous threefold chord running right through from beginning to end. Now that's the only way you can understand the Bible. So now let's sum it up. The Bible is a revelation 
of God's eternal purpose with the supreme aim that we might be saved into it. Now we've got another chart that may help you. I all charts this evening, but it may help. Rather coarsely done chart, but it may help. The Bible is a revelation of God's eternal purpose with the, the supreme aim that we might be saved into it. God's eternal purpose, Christ and his body, the home of God. <coughs> That's the eternal purpose of God. Here's the creation of man. Here are the two trees, the tree of knowledge, a good and evil, and the tree of life. Now, <coughs> there are colours, I'm not sure that it's very clear in this light, but there are different colours that we've used. We've used brown, red, and yellow. Um, yellow denotes the eternal purpose of God. Now here it is, beginning here with the creation of man, and running right through to the marriage of the Lamb, the city of God, and on to the ages of the ages. As far as God's eternal purpose was concerned, there is no fall. His whole purpose was that fall or no fall, man might become one with Christ, in union with him, and might go on to marriage with him, and then on to the city, become the city of God, the center of administration for the whole universe, heaven and earth, and then the ages of the ages lying, as it were, dimly behind in the far distant future. Now the brown line marks the fall, and you will see it comes down here, right the way to the cross, and then continues on down, and we've put hell. It begins with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and marks the downward course of mankind as it fell in the beginning, when it took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and became a different creature to the one God intended it to be, constitutionally, and thus passed on its constitution to its children and on to their children. Now, alongside that brown line, you will see a red line. And this red line marks the redeeming purpose of God. It is closely allied to the eternal purpose of God. For its whole objective, by redemption, is to bring us back into the eternal purpose of God. So it begins here, and as in God's heart, as it were, moves on to this point here, where the seed of the woman is born, and the eternal purpose of God dawns, as it were, in a new way, uh, on this fallen earth, with Christ as the head. Should have been up here originally, but now he starts down here uh, in a fallen, uh, ruined earth. And then goes on to the cross. And then you see two lines now go up. The, the golden, the yellow line of God's eternal purpose and the red line of redemption. So great salvation because of a lamb slain. And so every man and woman who through the lamb slain trusts in Christ in God for the forgiveness and cleansing of his sin and for um, the gift of eternal life starts on the course which leads up to the marriage supper of the Lamb and then on to the city of God and on to the ages of the ages. Now, I don't know whether that helps you, but you see, in a very simple chart form, we have tried to 
illustrate what I have said. The Bible is a revelation of God's eternal purpose with the supreme aim of our being saved into it. We must understand that our salvation is a means to an end. Now, I'm not going to take up this evening whether it's possible to be saved and yet still lose one's inheritance uh, in the city of God. That may well be. But the whole point is this. So great salvation is the means by which God takes fallen men and women, such as you and me, sinful, unclean as we are, and uh, saves us and puts us back into God's original and <laughs> eternal purpose. <coughs> Now, um, the scope of the Bible is therefore governed by God's eternal purpose in its immediate and practical application. Now, there's an awful lot about God's eternal purpose which the Bible does not speak of. We must say that. Oh, I'm going to tell you a few a bit later just to give you some problems. But there are a tremendous number of things that the Bible doesn't touch on, which it could touch on, concerning the eternal purpose of God and the destiny of his people. The whole point is this. The Bible, um, uh, the scope of the Bible is governed by God's eternal purpose in its immediate and practical application. Now, let's just face that. What does that mean? That you and I have got to be saved. That's the immediate application. If you and I want to get into the eternal purpose of God, we've got to be saved. And we've got to be saved not by our own works, not by our own goodness, but by faith in Christ through the grace of God. That's the only way. Through the blood of the Lamb, through the death of Christ. That's the only way. That's the immediate application. But just wait, it's a bit more than that. Uh, it's practical application, yes. That you just don't know it up here but that you open your heart and take the Lamb as your only basis of salvation. That's the immediate and practical application. Or I look at it a little further. The immediate and practical application, that you and I have got to become holy people. Now that, that hits hard. You and I have got to become holy people. In other words, we've got to be sanctified. We've got to be perfected. It's the only way that, um, that we can be um, brought into God's eternal purpose. So the scope of the Bible is all about being saved and then being prepared. All that old man, that old nature being dealt with, how it's dealt with, how it's put out of the picture, how the new man is fed and developed, how the new man must grow. And uh, it's all this question of uh, living stones, not just a living stone, but living stones being built together. That's the immediate and practical application of the eternal purpose of God. He wants a home. So it's not just a question of you and I being saved. It's a question of that once we are saved, that we should not only live holy, separate and sanctified lives through the work of the Holy Spirit, the cross and the Holy Spirit, but that we should become members of one another, of Christ and one of another. We should become members of one body. We should become living stones built together into a house, a habitation of God in the Spirit. That's the immediate and practical application. The scope of the Bible. Let's look at this chart again. What is the scope of the Bible? Well, I have drawn this green line 
like an open book. Not very well, because I'm not much of an artist in this way. Um, here is a book that is open. It's supposed to be the Bible. The Bible, its scope. Now you will see that the scope of the Bible begins just before time and ends just after time. In other words, this red line is time. And so the Bible doesn't say very much about before time is eternal. And it says not a lot about the ages to come. The principal material of the Bible is all to do with this, from that point to that point, from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's the principal objective of the Bible, the, the principle that governs the inclusion of most of its material. Yes, it's got quite a bit to say about before times eternal, but it doesn't. There are lots of questions we haven't got answered, and it says quite a lot about the ages to come, but leaves a tremendous amount unanswered. But it says a lot about this. Sometimes some of us would probably wish that there were certain stories that had been left out of the Bible and we had a little bit more about some other things. But the whole point of the Bible is that it, it shows us what man is. And very faithful in uh, revealing to us the nature of man, even of saved men and women, how easy it is to revert, how easy it is to fall. It's faithful in its record in touch with life, shows us just what we're made of. Well, now, you see, the scope, therefore, of the Bible is, uh, I trust, uh, clearly defined, um, in your mind, at any rate. Uh, if you want to have a lot of questions answered about uh, uh, prehistoric times, well, I don't think the Bible is going to say much about that. And if you want to have a lot of questions answered about uh, the far eternal future, I don't think the Bible is going to say a lot about that. Uh, the scope of the Bible is to do with you and me and life as we now live it and why something's gone wrong and how God has moved to put it right and the way you and I can be in the good of what he's done and furthermore if we are in the good of what he's done we have a hope for the future well now having said all that let's move on uh, we must I think therefore carefully note that much is mentioned only vaguely and much is left out altogether and in other instances, facts are stated without explanation, interpretation, or corroboration. Uh, the, uh, the, um, the aim of the Bible governs its scope. Now, um, let's just look at this. Well, let's first of all, let's just look at some of the things the Bible doesn't even mention. There's not a mention of the great Chinese Empire. There is not a mention of the great Indian civilization. There is not a mention of the great Inca civilization. These things are just not even touched upon. Oh, I know there have been some ingenious scholars who have tried to make some of the rather unusual, more unusual names in Isaiah and elsewhere um, refer to China, and uh, in some cases they've tried to make them refer to India. Um, but uh, on the whole, it, uh, it cannot be proved. Um, as far as China is concerned, it does not seem to be even mentioned in Scripture. And yet, 
one of the greatest, if not the greatest, civilizations that the world has ever witnessed flowered in China. And the standard of life and everything else was above any of its contemporaries. And uh, it is a remarkable fact that on the whole we have no mention of these great civilizations. The Bible passes over them in silence. And then again, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I know you know a little bit about, I think, ch Chinese civilization, Indian civilization. I don't know how much you know about Inca civilization, but if you've seen some of those pictures of some of the cities up in the Andes, uh, you must be amazed. Whatever were they doing up there? Whatever? Well, what, what, well, how did they build them? Uh, it, it is the evidence of a most remarkable civilization, and yet the Bible has nothing to say. Nothing to say. And then again, uh, look at what the Bible only mentions in a, uh, in a somewhat vague way. Only, it only really mentions it because it touches God's people. Well, take Egypt. If you look for the, to the Bible to be a, a, a kind of handbook on Egyptology, you're going to be upset. It, it touches on quite a few things in uh, uh, Egyptian uh, civilization, but it, uh, it is uh, just here and there. And it is the same with Babylon, and it is the same with Persia, and it is the same with Greece, and it is the same with Rome. All these great civilizations are mental. And yet, it somehow just states a few facts and leaves us with some very big queries. Uh, we would, for instance, why wasn't, why didn't the Bible just tell us which pharaoh it was? That, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that Joseph laboured under. And I know Nigel has some ideas on it and some of others, but I mean, uh, it would have been much simpler if the Bible had just simply told us his name, wouldn't it? At least we would have been clear. But it doesn't. And yet, you see, it describes to us certain details of life and um, details of government and administration, particularly, for instance, in Daniel and elsewhere, which have proved to be absolutely accurate. It is uh, one of the most remarkable things in Scripture that it has uh, just touched on these great civilizations only because they happen to touch God's people. Oh, there are many things we could say. It is interesting, just as an aside, for instance, to take Babylon. Scripture says more about Babylon than any other, any other great civilization. Why? Why? Uh, because, you see, Babylon is a symbol, taken up as a symbol in God's word, of the world in all its genius and might. And so you have quite a story of Babylon. You're to you're, we're told who founded it. We're told about the Tower of Babel, which in Scripture is connected with it. And then on we go right the way through until we come right to um, Revelation, and uh, Babylon's gone. The city is finished long ago, but, but we've still got Babylon. And the interesting thing is that John takes this, I mean, talks a lot about Babylon, the great harlot of the nations, and so on, you see. Because the scripture is taking it as a symbol. And then, of course, um, we have to note what the Bible att focuses attention upon. And here we've got a little tiny nation called Israel, with no great civilization, which has left us no great monuments of architecture or anything else, and the whole Bible is focused upon this little people. And it tells us details 
about their life and about um, God's ways with them and so on and so forth. It traces them right back to Abraham and, and, and tells us the whole history of that nation from the moment God appeared to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees and told him to get out. And then it traces the whole story of Abraham and then um, Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph and then on to Moses and then a nation. It's a most remarkable thing. And then again, uh, may I make mention of a few other things. Have you ever noticed the silence of the Bible about some great men? Uh, for instance, uh, of course, there's most shocks on it, I don't know. But um, uh, do you know that the Bible has nothing to say about Confucius? I don't know whether you expect one day to see Confucius in heaven. I do. Well, I don't know what you do. Uh, but the Bible has nothing to say about him, nor mentions. And yet in their own day and in their own way, these men were tremendous for the purity of their life and the morality of their teaching. There was an awful lot of rubbish and nonsense talked, I'm afraid sometimes even by missionaries, uh, about Confucianism, maybe of what it has come to be, but in its pure form. Oh, there's such a lot that's good about the teaching of Confucius and Mencius. And then you take that amazing man who comes onto history and passes off, and we've got so many questions about a man called Maudsley, contemporary of Abraham, one of the most remarkable figures in world history because he taught universal love. And he gathered people all over Turkestan and Inner Mongolia and, and northwestern China into groups of disciples who practiced love. It, was, it has been called the pre-Christian church. And yet here we have just uh, a little of what he taught and, uh, and he's gone. He's not mentioned in the Bible. You've got a man like Lao Tzu and his great way, the great, his great document, the way of virtue. And uh, uh, there's so much that's good, it's not mentioned. And you come on to Buddha, and you know what Buddha himself taught. I don't think we can always argue with a lot. Some, there was a man who was seeking out for God. And then Zoroaster, the great Persian. And then we come to Plato and Aristotle. They're not mentioned in Scripture. Scripture passes over them in silence. Absolute silence. And yet, Scripture takes a man called Job, who is not even one of the Israelites. He's a Gentile. And it devotes a large portion of the Old Testament to the story of Job. And then you take a little person like Ruth, again, a Gentile woman, married to a child of God, against God's law. And you've got a whole book that tells the story of her life. And you take Hannah, well, um, Hannah, where she was a child of God, uh, and yet, uh, what has she left us with? Well, you and I would probably have never recorded Hannah's story in any history that you and I would have written. We would have probably included perhaps Confucius or, or Mencius or someone else like that. But God, in his wisdom, has included the story of Hannah. Because, in fact, it was one of the great turning points in the history of God's people. And you see, we go on, take, um, for instance, the story of Samson. I know there are some Christians who have felt that the story of Samson could well have been left out of the Bible. 
it seems to be a rather sordid story, one that speaks mostly of failure, and I'm sure that if you and I were compiling the Bible, we would have felt there were some other things much better included than the story of Samson. And yet, here we have the story of Samson and these others, they're overlooked. And then sometimes it would seem that the humanly insignificant is lit up at the expense of what we would call the important. For instance, Rahab. You know, Rahab was a harlot. And yet we have a whole story of Rahab. You know, Rahab was the mother of Boaz who married Ruth. Isn't that amazing? And Rahab, why do you think Rahab's brought into the story? Well, turn to Matthew and chapter 1 and you've got the answer. She is in the messianic line. Take Bathsheba. Don't you think that you and I, if we'd been writing the story, uh, the history of things, would have left Bathsheba out? You and I wouldn't have known that Bathsheba was destined to become one in the royal line of the Messiah, would you? You and I wouldn't have thought it. You, perhaps we would have felt that rather unhappy story, unhappy episode in David's life, best left out. Perhaps we would say, it's insignificant. It's, it's sordid, and it's evil, and it's insignificant in the light of the tremendous things of David's reign. And yet, God's Holy Spirit brings it into the record. Why? Because another thousand years on, Jesus Christ was to be born of Joseph and Mary, and Bathsheba was in the Messianic line. Well, uh, I mean, these are things I don't know what you think. Uh, take the Song of Solomon. Uh, you know, uh, it's an amazing uh, story, the Song of Solomon. It's, what, is it, what is it to do with? Uh, we don't really know. Uh, is it, I mean, humanly speaking, was it in, in fact a story of his love for uh, his, the queen, his queen? Uh, or his love for someone else? Uh, in his large uh, number of wives. What is this story? But do you think you and I would have actually included it? Don't you think there were some other documents we may have felt would have been better in? And yet, the Holy Spirit brings the Song of Solomon because it is the greatest allegory in the whole of Scripture of the love of, of God for his church. At the time, we may not have felt it. But it's coming. Oh, and uh, what about the little book of Haggai, with its building program? Uh, do you think really that little book of two chapters is worth its place in, in the scripture? Don't you think you might have felt at the time, well now it's all over? Surely that's one of the little documents that could fall out after all. This temple that we've built is really not very marvellous. Look at the pyramids of Egypt. Look at some of the other great temples. Look at some of the great structures that have gone up this little temple in Jerusalem. What really is it? And anyway, it's only bricks and mortar on God looking for something greater than that, perhaps, if we had more spiritual insight and perception. But God, in his wisdom, has kept the little book of Haggai in Scripture, because although it may have seemed insignificant, it has a tremendous lesson for us. So, you see here, you have these different things. The point is that most of the ordinary historical narrative and biographical narrative in Scripture, insofar as it records facts, could have been written by any contemporary historian or bi biographer. But in the Bible, it is interpreted 
in the light of God's purpose and redemption. And that's the difference. History takes on a new light because it's placed into the whole setting of God's eternal purpose and his redeeming work, both biography and history. Now, there are many questions which are um, either not answered at all or only partly answered. Um, I'm just going to give you a few. You can give me some, I have no doubt. And I'll give you just a few. Uh, the origin of sin. Where did sin come from? Oh, someone says, I know that. The Bible tells us. Satan, yes. But how did it first appear in Satan? That's not answered in Scripture. Let me ask you another question. Was there a pre-Adamic race? In other words, was there a race of men before Adam? Well, was there or wasn't there? We don't know. There are some amazing inferences in God's Word, but uh, that's all. Nothing else. The question's not answered. Uh, there are some who would like to believe it and indeed did teach it. But uh, was there a race? Tell me, um, do you think, uh, there are, does the Bible tell us whether there are any other planets inhabited by man or men? Um, for instance, as I once heard one great preacher, I won't tell you his name, it is a great, well-known, leading evangelical, he spoke on, on, on the 99. He told us that the others were, all the other planets which were inhabited, which had never fallen, and have gone on into God's great purpose. But we were the, the black sheep, this planet, this universe, which had strayed and fallen. Now, is it, as, is it as silly? If there are universes upon universes upon universes upon universes, is there somewhere else, some others that are inhabited? And have they been tainted and touched with sin? The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. How does God's sovereignty and man's free will tie up? That's an old one. But the Bible doesn't really answer it. It only states the facts on both sides and leaves it. How does it tie up? Tell me, what measure, in what measure is God directly sovereign in the affairs of nations? Well, here again, the Bible states facts. It would seem as if God actually, in some cases, takes full charge. In others, he leaves them. But you see, here again, the Bible doesn't actually answer it. Oh, there are questions we've got. Let me ask you a few others. <coughs> um, what do you think? Do you think the Bible tells us what we shall do in heaven? Does it? Well, of course, it does tell us we shall sin. But is that all we shall do in heaven? Tell me. Does the Bible say anything? I know it may seem very silly to you, but um, does the Bible say anything about clothes? Food? Habits? I'm not going to embarrass you, but I could ask you a number of questions about the life to come, which the Bible has nothing to say about. Of course, one of the ones that we, oft we often hear asked is, shall we recognise each other in heaven? Well, no, you see, it's all very well for you to say dogmatically yes or no. The point is... Uh, it's so interesting, when the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, he was evidently clothed. Take that one out. And he ate boiled fish. But it doesn't mean anything. See, 
These are things that are, uh, that are, are mysteries. You can smile at them, but when you go away and think about them, there's something in them. I want to ask you another question, which may seem a little amusing. What about people's idiosyncrasies? Now, it's all very well to say, oh, no, we won't have those in heaven. But you know, half a person's character will have gone <coughs> when they've lost some of those little oddities. Now, have we got to put up with them in heaven or not? Those little oddities in people's characters and so on, which, in fact, are part of the person. I mean, it, it, it may seem strange to you, but are oh, those? These are questions the Bible has nothing to say about. And then again, tell me, does the Bible say anything about what exactly happened to the natural creation? Now, according to the Bible, when, when the natural creation was first created, it didn't feed on meat. And yet, and yet, and yet. What happened and when did it happen? And uh, if the whole creation was vegetarian at the beginning, what happened and how did the constitution of the creation change? And so these are questions, many questions. Oh, I could go on. There are many other questions too. Perhaps they're not as big as those, not as important. For instance, what did Christ do between the years of 12 and 30? Oh, I know he was a carpenter, but oh... Wouldn't you love to know a little bit about his life, of the difficulties that he must have had in the carpenter's shop, the difficult customers, and so on, the long hours of work? And she would like to know a lot more about that. <clears throat> what was Christ like as a child? Oh, these are questions. Um, what did Moses do in his first 80 years? Oh, we know a little bit about it, but... You know, there are some marvellous traditions in the Talmud about Moses. They say he was one of the greatest heroes in Egypt because he led the campaign against Libya. Well, now, is it true or is it not true? It says that he forsook the wealth. He, he, he turned his back on all the greatness and wealth of Egypt, preferring to cast in his lot with the, with the people of God. That's the only inference we have in Scripture that he left something very great. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we knew? But the Bible doesn't say. You see, God knows best. And he, he hasn't told us. And uh, what did Moses do for 40 years looking after sheep? Of course I know he was looking after sheep. <coughs> but I would like to have known a good deal more about his life there. Here are questions. I can ask you many others too. Did Hosea's marriage work out in the end? I've often thought that. After all that marvellous story in the book of Hosea, I've often thought to how did it work out in the end when he finally went and rebought her uh, out of all that trouble? Did it work out in the finish? Did they live happily together? How did Jeremiah write lamentations in um, acrostic form and in keener rim rhythm? The keener rhythm is like the funeral dirge. It's dum 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 boom, dum 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 boom, dum 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 boom. Uh, how did how did Jeremiah write? Lamentations, which is the most moving and remarkable of, of the documents amongst the prophets. How did he write it with each verse beginning with A and then and, and B and, and so on and in Kino rhythm? Right, so we're not told. Uh, I'll ask you another. Who wrote the Hebrew letter? Oh, everyone said Paul. No, 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 it doesn't say Paul. And that's a great discussion as to whether, well, who was it? Was it Apollos? Was it Paul? 
Was it Timothy? Who wrote the Hebrews? It would be very interesting for us that we're not told. And so we can go on. Did Paul make a mistake in going to Jerusalem? Do you remember the prophet came and bound his hands and said, the Holy Spirit says if you go up to Jerusalem, you'll have bonds. And the, and the church prayed and said to him, don't go up, Paul. We are sure that you're making a mistake. Paul went, and what happened? He got into trouble, and as we know, he got a free ticket to Rome. That is true, as a prisoner. He went to Rome, and he had, he had always purposed to go to Rome. But did he make a mistake? Scripture doesn't say. And um, then again, um, was he married? And if he was, what happened to his wife? It would solve a lot of people's um, uh, queries and uh, suppositions and speculation if they could only know whether Paul in fact... Now here you have all these different questions. You see, these and many more are left unanswered insofar as they are not important to our understanding of the Bible's aim. In fact, not one of those questions is really important to our understanding of the Bible's aim in its immediate and practical application. Uh, the wonder of it is, is that whenever it in fact touches the immediate and practical application, the Bible is absolutely clear and dogmatic. So we see that the Bible is a revelation of God's eternal purpose with the aim of our being awakened, saved, and incorporated. Now, there are just a few things we could mention which may help if you'll listen carefully. We see within the pages of the Bible, then, we've talked quite a lot about God's eternal purpose. Now, we see within the pages of the Bible, one, an omnipotent God working according to the counsel of his own will and sovereignly performing his purpose. Now, you may have an argument with that. That doesn't bother me. The point is that Scripture declares it right the way through from beginning to end that it is an omnipotent God that rules and that that omnipotent God is working everything out even in this fallen world in all its strife and trouble according to the counsel of his own will and he's sovereignly performing his own purpose. All going to be in due time. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is wonderful, his, the Bible reveals within its pages his original and eternal purpose that his son should be head of all things and heir of all things. And that a people, originally meant to be mankind, in union with him, part of him, should share in it with him. That's the second. The third thing that we find within the pages of the Bible is this. The foreseeing of, by God of the fall and the ruin of man and the determination of God to save a people out of mankind, out of a fallen mankind, and in them and through them secure his original intention, still to make Christ head over all things and heir of all things with a people joined to him. Now, just an aside. You see, when man took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he chose to become head over all things 
himself and heir over all things, to all things, himself. That's exactly the story of fallen mankind. They have become the ruler of it all. They think, in fact, the lie, the lie of the whole thing is that Satan himself has become head over all. Prince of the powers of the air, prince of this world. He has become head over it all and hopes to be heir of it all. Now that's why there's a battle. Because Satan has said, I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne to the throne of God. So now there's this great battle commenced as to who is going to be heir, head and heir of all things. And man is the key. Because Satan has got hold of man as a vessel in which he indwells. He's in it. And sometimes you can see Satan. Uh, we, we know it ourselves, don't we? Uh, we can see it in our old nature sometimes. He's there. Something that comes out of the pit. It's there in us. And uh, it's only got to be played upon. And out it comes. And uh, on the other hand... Uh, God's purpose is that the Son should be head and heir, and that he should have a people in whom he dwells, who is goodness and purity and righteousness itself. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing is this, and I, I love this, the, the Bible reveals within its pages the appointment of the Son from the beginning to a saving, keeping, and perfecting ministry. And his appearance in due time, in this world, amongst men, to live, to die, and to be raised as the basis of his ministry. I love that. Because it just means that the Lord Jesus wasn't an afterthought. Uh, God appointed him from the beginning uh, to... Uh, a saving ministry. Oh, I see that one. And you know, the Lord Jesus now is alive. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And what's he doing? His basis is that he lived a perfect life. He died a complete death. He was raised as the evidence that God had accepted it. And he's at the right hand of God on that basis of shed blood and a broken body. What? Ever living to make intercession. He can save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. He's there, at the right hand of God, uh, in a, not only a saving ministry. Listen, you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus tonight, and the Lord Jesus says to the Father, save him. Save her. I died for that one. Right, that's his saving ministry. But it's a keeping ministry. If you and I get into trouble, we've only got to look up. And, uh, and, and Jesus says to the Father, keep him. Keep her. And perfecting ministry is, there's one who's watching over us, and in everything he's seeking to perfect what is of himself. Get rid of the dross, and refine what is of himself. Well, there was, that's something else I think is very wonderful. And then fifthly, there is the calling out by the Holy Spirit of a people from every nation to be the body of Christ. And of course you and I. And that's revealed within the pages of God's word. What's happening today? 
everywhere, in nearly every nation, if not every nation, under the sun, there is a great work going on at the Holy Spirit. It may seem in some places to be very insignificant, but it is the clarion call of the gospel of God. And out of every nation and tongue and kindred and people, there are coming those who are washing themselves in the blood of the Lamb and are becoming the family of God. This is the great uh, work of the Holy Spirit sent forth on the day of Pentecost to call out a people to be the bride and the body of God's Son. And sixthly, the Bible reveals within its pages the final vindication and triumph of God and his purpose fulfilled. Now, this is, uh, I believe, of great help. There are people who sneer at prophecy. <clears throat> they feel that somehow or other, uh, you know, it, it just can't be. Because somehow it's so supernatural, it's somehow or other beyond the realm, outside the realm of human intelligence, and it baffles. And we have that capacity sometimes of just trying to turn away from it, just because it is so remarkable. But prophecy is a fact. And just because God knew that his people were going to have a long, drawn-out battle in which at times the enemy would seem to be violently on top, he allowed the prophets to prophesy of all that would come to pass. Now listen, you may think this strange, but in the days at the end of this age, whether they're a hundred years, two hundred years, or farther off, in those days I'll tell you some scriptures that are going to be more precious to God's children than anything else. And they're going to be parts of the book of Revelation, parts of Matthew 23, and parts of Daniel. Why? Because they foretold centuries and centuries and centuries ago, no, millennium that the, the end would see the reign of the Antichrist, Satan incarnate. The end. And when the Christians are literally being persecuted to the death, everywhere, so that as it says in Scripture, it, it, it was not possible if those days were not shortened that the elect themselves would be saved. Uh, it says the dragon went to pursue the seed of the woman, to destroy it from off the face of the earth. When those days come, there'll be this in Scripture that makes people in all their persecution and martyrdom look up and realize that God is on the throne. Why? Because he foresaw it all and foretold it all and revealed the ultimate when Jesus went to the cross, oh, it would have been easy for him if thousands upon thousands of angels had gathered around. And as he, as he died on that cross, he could have seen the triumph that was to be his. He didn't see it. All he saw was blackness and all he felt was forsakenness. But he knew that it had been foretold, that this was the work of redemption, and that when he died, God would raise him up again. So it will be in the end with the church in its last great phases before the return of the Lord when uh, it will seem as if it is lost and forsaken and the night has come, said the Lord, when no man can work. No man can work. That will be a day when no man can work. And in that day 
Oh, how glad we shall be for the pages of this book which reveal the absolute and final vindication of God and the fulfillment of his purpose. Well, you see, it's all here and here. This is where you and I are if we're saved. We're here, somewhere here. You see, we've been saved to the cross. We're no longer on that path which Jesus called the broad way that leads to destruction. But we're in the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And oh, that you and I might press on. Really press on. Uh, to know the Lord more and more fully. Well, we've said a lot. I think we must note carefully that the Bible, according to its own word, is able to make us wise unto salvation. Isn't that a wonderful word? In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Um, you knew, said Paul to Timothy, the sacred writings which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Wise unto salvation. What is the aim of this book? What is the aim of this book? To make us wise unto salvation. Don't despise it. Don't degrade it. Don't dishonor it. Don't give it a place any lower than the place Christ gave to it. This book, these sacred writings, are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, not through unbelief, but through faith in Christ Jesus. You can have this book in your hands and be blind to salvation. You can have this book in your hands and be wise unto salvation. Why? The key is faith. And if you need to be delivered... If you need to know something more of your so great salvation, for I think most of you are saved, you know the Lord. If you need to know it more deeply, more fully, it's faith that's the key. If you come to this book with unbelief, it will not speak to you. It will only mock you. But if you come to it with faith, it will make you wise to something more in your so great salvation. But it does more than that. Listen, it is able to make us complete, as the Revised Standard Version puts it, to make us complete, equipped to every good work. The word is a lovely word. It means fitted out, furnished, as the old Authorized Version puts it, truly furnished. That's right. It's the house, the idea of a house which is empty. And then suddenly you start to put the curtains up and the, uh, the lampshades on and the carpets down and you get the, the furniture in. And it's truly furnished. It's equipped. You can have a kitchen, you know, and all you can have are four walls, a floor and a ceiling and a tap. Not so much of a kitchen. It's got to be complete and equipped unto every good work. Well, you want the pots and the pans, and you need the cooker, and you need uh, all the utensils, and then you need the food and the rest. You've got to have everything, so it's thoroughly furnished. Now, this is the word. This book, what is the aim of the Bible? To make you wise unto salvation. Yes, in an initial way, and in an ever greater way, through faith. But it's do more. It is to fit you out unto every good work. In other words, to put into your experience, into your hands, every single thing you need to live a godly life. 
full of good works. Well, that's this book. You need to be saved. All right, this is the book. You need to be sanctified. This is the book. You need to be kept. This is the book. You know the thing that's been coming to me recently? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. How, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed unto thy commandments? Jesus said, you are clean to the word that I have spoken unto you. Oh, that's very interesting. This book, it's this book again. What a lot is in these, in these covers. The Bible, therefore, has not merely the aim of our being saved and incorporated into God's purpose, but the power in the hand of the Holy Spirit to do it. And that's the most important thing of all. It's got the power to do it, but there's one thing required, faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 about those whose hearts were mixed when they received the word of God with unbelief. And they fell. Because as they heard the word of God, they said, oh, it can't be, it can't be. Not me, not me, it can't be, it can't be. Not for me. But you see, faith is the thing. It's a grain of a, like a grain of mustard seed that takes hold of God's word and says, that's it. And that is true if every man proves to be a liar. I know there was a time when I thought myself bigger than God's word and tended to look down upon it a little and question it in all kinds of ways. But there came a time when I came to this simple position that God's word is true even if I'm a liar and if every other man proves to be a liar. And since then I've discovered that God's word works. It's when, when there's an attitude of real faith to God's word that it works. So <clears throat> we ought, I think, finally to mention that the Bible is a book of unchanging principles. And uh, once we are saved, it is a matter of spiritual education in those principles. Now, I don't mean regulations, and I don't mean laws. I mean principles, things that are inherent within the life of God. And the Bible shows them. And we read Hebrews 4.12, how the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, living, active, and, and able to cut. It's able to do the work, if we'll only let it. Well, there you are. Uh, there are the first rudiments of the words of God. And we ought to go on from milk to solid food, so that we grow. And how do we grow? By using our spiritual faculties. And as we use our spiritual faculties, so we grow up. What we receive, we must use. What we receive, we must put into practice. Those principles are vital to our spiritual health and growth. Well, I mean, we could say a lot about principles, but I think uh, that's your job uh, to find out those principles that are within God's word. But they're there. And many of those stories in the Old Testament, in all these ages, were written to reveal principle. And so you'll get principle, for instance, take the principle of faith. It's, it underlies everything from beginning to end. If the righteous or the just shall live on the principle of faith. And if once you move off it, everything starts. <coughs> You can grow up here, but everything stops when you're off the principle of faith. Take another principle, the principle of the cross. 
if you assert yourself, if you start saying I, you begin to sort of die spiritually. You're finished spiritually. It's the old law of the flesh in operation. But if you learn the principle of the cross, what it is to die, to let go, and uh, just trust in him, you find a new principle of life. The principle of risen life, of resurrection. You see, these are principles. Principle of travail. What is the principle of travail? There is nothing of real value without suffering. It's behind everything. Look right through the whole of this book, and you'll find wherever you look, here's this principle, that everything that means something to God comes through travail. Principle. Principle of separation. Wherever there is mixture, there is unhappiness. No greater truth. Wherever there is mixture, there is unhappiness. And God's word is filled with examples of this simple principle. Where there is purity of heart, purity of hand, there's joy. But where sin has come in, all worldliness, and it's corrupted and tainted and spoiled, there's unhappiness, emptiness and vacuum. And of course the enemy's whole job is to rob Christians of what is theirs. Rob them of the life. Here they are, look, witnesses, what? Witnesses to what? To eternal life. And they haven't got it. They're not enjoying it. Theirs is an empty... Witnesses to joy. They haven't got any joy. They're full of moans and aches and groans. and Witnesses to salvation, but uh, it doesn't seem to work. Uh, they, they've got a salvation they sing about and pray about, but it, it's not in practical operation in their life. They're not being saved. And so we can go on, you see. Oh, the aim and the scope of the Bible, the aim of the Bible is that you and I may be awakened, saved and incorporated into the eternal purpose of God. That is the supreme aim of the Bible. How? by the Redeemer and by his redeeming work. That's how. And the scope of the Bible is the immediate and practical application of that great purpose of God. As far as you and I go, individually and corporately. And so we pray.